Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm sorry my output hasn't been as frequent. It always feels pretty chaotic towards the end of a concert season, so I thought I'd let you know what I've been up to. One of the groups I direct, the Bird Ensemble, will be singing at St. James next season. It's certainly a different venue than St. Mark's. It's more of a big, grand cathedral feel. The sight lines may not be as good, but I think the sound is better at St. James. St. Mark's is so reverberant, it's really hard to pull off anything that has a lot of fast-moving notes, like Baroque music. I remember when we did Handel's Dixie Dominus in there, and that's before I had that shell that I built. That was truly a challenge. The other group I direct, Vox 16, just wrapped up their season. We are currently auditioning singers for next season. If you are interested, I hope you will sign up. The more people we get auditioning, the better this group could sound. I always go back and forth about what to focus on with this group, and I still haven't decided. I'm not quite sure it matters right now if we focus on a particular period of music, so I've decided not to make a decision. Next season, we'll be pairing some early music with some modern stuff, and we'll be presenting a concert of new music by local composers in April. In the past, we've announced a call for submissions, but this time I think we'll do it a little differently. I would like April's concert to be made up of entirely new compositions, so the call will be for interested composers that want to write something new for the April concert. A kind of related project I'd like to see happen is a CD recording of that music in January. I'm hoping to raise uh, between five and $6,000 to produce a CD of this new music that we would release at the April concert. So more details about that coming soon. It's been a couple years now since I started Vox 16, and I can't say how excited I am about this group and about the design of the group. There aren't very many groups out there that turn over intentionally every year or so. You get a kind of culture of competition between singers that want to get themselves known and sing with other good singers. It's really exciting to see this develop. I've actually pulled singers out of Vox 16 to sing with Bird Ensemble, and it's been a luxury to be able to look to Vox 16 for singers when we need them. So I'm really happy with how that's going. Another exciting event that's happening next month is this recording retreat in France. You might have heard on Facebook that 20 singers, uh, directed by yours truly, will be in the south of France in wine country recording Flemish polyphony in a very old church. Like we're talking, I think, 1200s. So that's going to be out of this world. I'm trying to figure out if this should be an annual tradition. We had 40 people apply with only 20 slots. Initially, I only wanted to have 16 singers on the course, since that feels more chamber, more intimate. 
but I didn't want to deny these other eager applicants. As long as the interest is this high, I'll keep planning one each year. The guest on today's podcast is Shia Lyon. She has a genuine passion for connecting people to classical music. Part of her job is trying to convince music groups like the Bird Ensemble and other groups out there to use her resource, which is the Live Music Project, and post concerts that the general public might be interested in attending. To be honest, I had a pretty cynical view of this effort. First, it's a pretty thankless job, it looked like. She doesn't direct a group of her own, so it, isn't, it wouldn't help her directly. And two, how would this actually help me? How does posting on Live Music Project help get people to my concert? But after talking to her, I became convinced that there is greater good here. All of us are trying to grow our audience base, and this really requires us to find people who we don't know already, people who aren't on our radar. And her resource is all about attracting strangers to music. We need to connect those strangers with similar musical interests to our groups. So I hope you will follow her and support what she's doing with Live Music Project. She is genuinely trying to do good things for the Seattle music scene. And without further chatty chat, here is Shia Lyon. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm here with Shia Lyon from the Live Music Project. Shia, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I bet many of the people listening will know of you and will know of your work. But I think it still is good if you want to give some background about yourself and how you ended up doing the Live Music Project. <laughs> sure. Well, um, the Live Music Project, as it is now in 2017, is a community calendar for classical and contemporary music. So it lists um, all the events that are happening, whether they are concerts, open rehearsals, student recitals, um, instrument zoos for children, or petting zoos. Um, whatever it is, it can be on the calendar as long as there's a, a classical element. It's live, and it's sort of within like a two-hour driving radius of Seattle. Um, and it's a completely egalitarian tool such that anyone from the most professional orchestra to the uh, most um, starting out student could be on this calendar and get the same visibility as any other group. You can't be to pay to be higher on the ratings or anything, on their listings or anything like that. That's so it aims cool. to be really comprehensive. Um, the Live Music Project, as it started in 2013, was an idea um, that would hopefully make it possible to find a specific piece of music that you really loved. So if you, like me, really loved the Brahms Double Concerto, mm -hmm. you would have a way to look that up on Google or on the, on the Live Music Project website and find all of the performances um, coming up um, anywhere. Um, you can see who is performing it and when, and then you could sort of stock your favorite piece of music or stock your favorite composer and really hear the music that you loved and, or, or any type of, you know, 
environment that you really liked and you could just go hear music there. Um, so uh, I had spent about 10 years working in tech helping design search interfaces. And I really loved doing that. And I, as many people in tech do, really, really wanted to build something of my own. Um, and uh, when I sort of got familiar with the Brahms Double Concerto, specifically the Andante movement, which just has this incredible thread of melody that winds through it, um, I, uh, I looked that piece of music up, and I found a YouTube video of it being played in the 70s. And I watched the soloists have this incredible mysterious, really sort of intimate communication between themselves, mm -hmm. um, just with the looks in their eyes. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be awesome to just see that go down mm -hmm. in front of me, mm -hmm. in the same room as, as I'm in. And so I tried to Google for that piece of music and find some concerts. And I got really, really excited when I found one and then found out it was had happened in 2013, which was, I guess, or at the time it was previous to when I had built the site. Anyway. Point is, it had already happened. My hopes were raised. They were dashed. And I thought, well, maybe I could just build this thing. Like, just build a tool that um, lists all of the concerts and is tagged with relevant metadata about who the composers are and who the um, performers are and what the works are so that people can have an easier time of finding the music that they love. That's great. So it sounds like you have a background in music. Did you grow up playing an instrument or...? Or how far, how far, uh, how far into music did you did you get did you go? I I can tell you exactly how far I went. Okay. <laughs> I went three years into Suzuki piano, and that is the full extent of my music education. <laughs> I can't uh, tell if this is a a good a a good thing for Suzuki music or not. <laughs> <laughs> I really loved playing. I did not love learning music I was told to learn. So I continue to play very casually um, and have since I was a teenager. Um, my first encounter with the piano was when um, my grandparents became the executors of somebody's estate mm -hmm. and they had to offload a piano. So they offloaded it at my house. Okay. And my babysitter was learning some Vivaldi and she came over. I was nine. And she played that, whatever it was that she was learning, and I loved it. And at some point, she taught me the beginning to um, the Moonlight Sonata mm -hmm. by ear. We didn't have the music at my house or anything, and I hadn't had any lessons, and I loved it, fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. So then I took some lessons, and nice. I stopped. Okay. Um, but uh, classical music in particular um, was always in the background at mm -hmm. my house growing up. It was sort of like some people have the TV on. Yeah. Um, we had the classical radio station on. Yeah. Um, and so I heard through my entire first 18 years of my life, I heard classical music in the background. It was always quiet enough that I didn't quite ever get to really fall in love with any of the melodies or the orchestrations or anything, but it was always familiar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now, um, several years later, um, as I start to start to rediscover um, a lot of this music and listen to records at home and go to concerts, um, I will tell my mom about this stuff, and she'll say, well, we have that record. You listen to it all the time as a kid. Uh -huh. um, and it's fun to think that maybe I'm falling in love with these things that I heard my whole life but never realized I was listening to. Yeah, that's interesting. I find that most people that are concert goers or people that I interact with have a pretty substantial um, experience with applied music. 
Uh, sounds like yours was, I mean, you clearly love it a lot. Um, but yours is only three years of some mm-hmm. piano lessons and maybe listening to classical music at home all the time helped. But, um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. That, that's somewhat of an anomaly, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, people, when they hear about the fact that I'm working on live music project, they often ask me, so you must love classical music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I do love a lot of classical music, but I love it for the same reason I love other music. It makes mm-hmm. me feel something. It makes me sometimes want to jump around in a really great way and pretend like I'm conducting, and yeah. and uh, I connect with it, and that's great. Um, what made me fall in love with, um, my, I'd say my real passion at the heart of this project, besides getting to work with data and getting to work on technology and getting to work with music, is that I get to work with our community. Uh-huh. Um, and I'll be honest, when I started this project as a side project, I wasn't sure if I would be interested in um, continuing working on it after I had launched because you know how it is sometimes when you complete something you are ready to do something new yeah Um, and if it had been just a data aggregation project that would have happened I think Uh but along the way and I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here but along the way when I first moved to Seattle um, I was still thinking about live music project as this way to stock your favorite piece of music, uh-huh. um, which, as you can imagine, is probably going to be useful to a relatively small group of people. Yeah. Um, and as I was thinking about this, um, I met my neighbor who plays in a community orchestra, mm-hmm. and he invited me to a rehearsal. He's like 80. He plays mm-hmm. the trumpet. And I went to this rehearsal, and it was the first time I'd ever even learned that there was such a thing as a community orchestra. Mm-hmm. And... So for the next couple of years, I spent a lot of time shadowing community orchestras to learn what do people who don't have marketing resources or don't have teams of people working for the orchestra, what do they need to help make their resources go a little bit farther? Yeah. Um, and I developed a deep love for these groups of people who just sort of get together to make music Yeah. and can't just do it in their own house because it requires 60 people or 70 people. Right. Um, and that's quite an operation. Mm-hmm. Um, so... As I learned about these groups, I learned that there's people who actually need to do more than just promote a specific piece. They really need a way to get word out about what they're doing. And so that is how Live Music Project developed from being this sort of a niche, well, I'll say super niche tool, <laughs> to being a broader niche tool in covering all of the concerts and not, you know, not just focusing on people who need to find a specific thing, but helping people who just are curious to explore right. this whole environment. And the community... I mean, we're we're over three years in now on this project, and I think um, what's really made it exciting and tantalizing and just joyful for me on a day-to-day basis has been all the people that I get to work with in our mm-hmm. community, whether they're people who are um, pro- pre- um, providing the music, so pre- presenting or, or producing or, or, or playing it themselves, or the people who are going to hear it and are having these experiences for the first time that they've never had before. Right. That That's great. You know, I'd like to dig in... Um, more about the details for the live music project um, towards the end of the podcast. Um, I want to ask you about a couple other things that that caught my attention when I was preparing for this. You are a part of MusoChat. Mm -hmm. Am I I pronouncing that right? Mm MusoChat. And uh, a a weekly conversation about new music and you talk about all sorts of stuff. You also have a software product engineer background. Product management. Product management, okay, mm-hmm. and you've done some writing, and um, and I yeah, and I'd love to 
talk to you about a few articles that I've read, and and you're also a photographer. Um, is there a place where people can follow your work and just you in general? Uh, you've got a Twitter handle or something, or a Facebook or a website? Sure. So I have a website. It's um, my full name, shialion.com. S-H-A-Y-A-L-Y-O-N. Um, it's a one-page website. It's very rudimentary. I built it myself, and I'm very proud of that. It's the extent <laughs> of my programming knowledge. <laughs> um, but it contains links to um, my writing, photography, pod- other podcasts, um, and other projects that I've worked on. Um, and I, I hope it will provide whoever goes there with a pretty interdisciplinary um, exploration. Mm-hmm. Great. I really... Um, I think the world that we live in is very connected. And I think a lot of times when we are focused on our disciplines, that we don't honor the fact that the things that we're doing are actually tied to other things. So I, I find a little excitement in stuff that overlaps. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. I didn't know this going into you know, our podcast planning, but I realized that we share a lot of interest, not just with music, but all the other stuff that goes behind the music, like the economics of actually doing it, the kind of business and the the artistic side behind it and I got to realize this as I was reading some of the articles you've written one of them out of the ether mm-hmm. for people who who don't know um, you should check it out I'm going to try to summarize this and I've got the bullet points here so people people <laughs> can get the short version here it's an interesting article about generating collaborations in this digital world and you have these five tips on how to do that One, stop being a perfectionist and get your stuff online. Two, talk about your passions. And three, demonstrate your sincerity again and again. Four, make sure people know you want to collaborate with them and actually do it. And five, build and maintain relationships. This was great, and I totally enjoyed the article. I have a question about the number one. I think a lot of people understandably get hung up on wanting whatever they're posting or whatever they're recording to be super high quality. And I agree that that can sometimes, that's not what people are really after. They don't care if it is, you know, high fidelity audio when they're judging your music. But I had a question. What do you think about the quality of the performer doing it? Do you think it matters if you get, say, like a good choir doing your stuff or, you know, versus a not so good choir? That's a good question. And I'll I'll introduce this caveat, which is that um, I am neither a performer, a composer, mm-hmm. recorder, sound artist. And um, when I wrote that article, I really interviewed people who are in the industry to get their feedback on what works for them. Yeah. Um, so just from my understanding, um, if you're looking for someone to perform or maybe you're looking for someone to record something that you wrote, mm-hmm. um, you might be looking for different things. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a live performer, from what people told me, what matters the most um, is, first of all, energy. So there's a bit of an opportunity cost if you decide to record in a studio and it sort of flattens your energy uh, if it's not video and there's nowhere, no way to see what you're going to be like on stage it, it, you just, you're basically depriving someone of information that might get them to hire you mm-hmm. um, I, 
I get the feeling that nobody was saying, you know, be a bad performer and yeah, give us yeah. a bad recording. I think they're saying, if you give us a recording that's of a performance, um, we can get the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And um, your quality of recording is not going to diminish the assessment of the quality of your art. Yeah. Is my understanding. Yeah. Um, and I think as a person, I, I put together sometimes lecture concerts. And when I think about the person who's going to be speaking, um, I don't necessarily judge all the words they're going to say when I, I watch a YouTube video of them and I think, is this going to be an engaging person to put in front of, in front of an audience for an hour? Mm-hmm. I, I, that's what I'm really focused on. I'm not really focused on, are they going to stutter? Yeah. I'm focused on, is the content they're getting across interesting? Yeah. And are they there yeah. as a human? Are they there in a way that people can really feel like connected in some way that's yeah that's interesting i completely agree in with that when you're seeking out a live performer um i guess i was thinking about composers mm-hmm. this made me think of all the composers that always turn in stuff when we make a call for box 16 or for bird ensemble we always get just a ton of submissions mm-hmm. and they all have their website with all their stuff up but i think from, from my experience and from, from hearing from them, I think it, the quality of the, who's performing your music, I think, has some kind of impact, mm. if that it, makes sense. Do you mean sense. when you're considering whether to perform it? Yeah, no, or when, when you, um, let's say you're a composer and you're trying to get um, more work composing. And so all people can do is go to your website and hear audio clips of your mm-hmm. stuff and see if they want if they want to commission. So in that scenario, it seems like the quality of performer would have, have make a difference in, in some way because you don't want like a bad rendition of your stuff. Yeah, possibly. Um, Karen P. Thomas, who um, she's the artistic director of uh, Seattle Pro Musica, um, uh, she had very specific things to say about this. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't say anything about the quality of the group who's recording it, but she said, avoid MIDI if you can. If you have no other choice, fine. Uh, I think Michael Hall maybe actually said that, but Karen said, post your scores. Mm-hmm. Because um, it's not just important for us to know as a performing group um, what the music is, yeah. but it's also important for us to know how hard it will be to perform. Yeah. And maybe that's harder to gauge from a recording or from a MIDI than it is from an actual score. Yeah. She heard, I think it seems like her go-to was saying, post your scores, Post them in a way that they'll be protected, but mm-hmm. post the scores. Yeah. No, that's a very pragmatic approach to it. That Yeah, that you definitely need to let people know how hard or how time-consuming um, sure. learning your music will be. And it can be hard to get your music performed as uh-huh. a composer. I, I understand that. And I think her solution really really respected that as well. Because yeah. if you're writing the music, at least you have the music. Yeah, yeah. And it's a given. Yeah, good. Another another article I wanted to bring up is in the absence of money. <laughs> and it's a great one. You talk about, you know, what it means to perform without pay. And you clarify, not it's not when to perform for free, but about what it entails to do your art without compensation. And you, you raise an interesting question. You ask... When compensation takes the form of passion and satisfaction instead of monetary remuneration, what is the impact on performance quality 
commitment, and artistic freedom? How did you end up answering that question? I think the answers won't be surprising to anyone who's been in the position to offer their work for free for something they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. I interviewed, I think, a dozen or so performers, um, many in Seattle, also across the country. And I think what it came down to was that um, people love to do work for free when they can, when it's going to get them one of the following. So people they love working with, a chance to collaborate with people they love working with, um, a chance to perform something they really, really love, um, getting to do that work for a, a cause they're passionate about, so being able to use their skill to support a cause um, really came through in that in those conversations. Um, and if it's going to get something for them later that benefits them in some other ways or, you know, professionally or financially or something like that. So if it's going to get them a gig. Mm -hmm. um, um, the interesting thing to me was that they, they pretty much all said quality doesn't sell for them. But they also said they deprioritize it. Yeah. They deprioritize the project they're not getting paid for, meaning they'll sometimes take paying gigs instead. Yeah sometimes after they've already committed because mm -hmm. they've got to eat. Um, and they'll sometimes practice less, which I thought was an interesting, it seemed to me as something that couldn't really coexist with quality not suffering. Yeah, right. Um, but at the same time, um, having done more sort of gig writing work in the more recent past, I'm coming to find that uh, I can identify with a lot of this and I think it comes down to efficiency. So you, you, you still are going to do a good job but maybe you're gonna this unpaid work will be less difficult mm -hmm. so you, you do have to practice less but you're you're still providing excellent work and I think we mm -hmm. find ways to make ourselves more efficient when we want to get things done and squeeze them into our schedule right 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 I, I run into this issue off and on with various choirs some really you know say we, we, they do it for the love of it and that the quality doesn't suffer because of that mm -hmm. and it just made me wonder like what what do we mean by quality? What are some objective standards of quality that we agree on? Um, coming from the other end, from the professional side, in, in my opinion, getting, getting something super high quality, it's mostly involved, I should say, in how much money you're paying people. Because it's not because they will spend more time practicing, but because then you have access to like a larger pool of people. Mm -hmm. Because there, there are a, there is a set of people that just won't do work for free, <laughs> and in my experience, money is the sort of limiting factor usually for me. I, uh, what? How do you? How do you think about all that? I mean, I think there's no doubt that money opens doors. Yeah. Um, and coming from an organization that's a nonprofit, um, every year we have an annual event. Birthday party, mm -hmm. and it's a concert with a lecture, and it's open to the public. Um, I'd like to think that it's possible to have excellent programming um, without paying artists if it's a benefit, mm -hmm. for all the reasons mentioned earlier, why people do things for free. Um, yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, um, as an organization that exists to support the arts, yeah. it is important to me that going forward we have the ability to actually compensate the people who are doing this work mm -hmm. 
honor their time yeah. and all the time that's gone into all of their education and and craftsmanship that's led to the moment of them performing really well on the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to pay for one for one thing just out of respect. Yeah. Um, for another, it's a livelihood and and to treat someone's passion as something that's just a hobby yeah. is not fair. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, I, I, I do agree. I think money opens doors. And when you're able to give people, um, whether it's buying them dinner after they mm-hmm. perform or covering their gas yeah. or giving them, good, giving them a good recording afterwards yeah. so that they have a lasting, you know, even if it's, it's a free concert, but it's, an, it's got really good sound recording. Right. Um, hardware and you can give them a really good recording afterwards that will get them really far in the future. Yeah. I think there's lots of ways um, to compensate that aren't necessarily monetary. Yeah. Um, I know composers talk a lot about how sometimes um, more valuable to them than getting a commission is getting many performances of that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and this Michael Hall talks about this actually in the um, digital collaborations article where he says, you know, when, when, Someone writes a piece for me, I play it dozens of times yeah. over the years so that they just get a lot of play and visibility. Um, so, uh, yeah, good. Those are some thoughts. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, just so the 10 people that are listening are clear <laughs> <laughs> that I totally um, agree that there are ways to feel compensated without money. You know, I've done stuff for free you know uh, there's no shame in that but I guess when I think about musical quality I find a strong link between that and your resources your financial resources and I guess and it's not to not to say that it's more meaningful um, subjectively to the performer or the artist Um, how do you feel about that what's your reaction to that what do you think about the link between quality and financial resources you made a really good point in an early podcast about um, vying for somebody's time. And if they need to make a living, which all of us pretty much do, um, we're going to be thinking about what percentage of our time needs to go towards that. Mm-hmm. And so um, there is a simple matter of supply and demand. And when someone is very, very good, there will be lots of demand. And it will be harder to make a case for them to do something for free with their time when they know the value of their hour. Whereas someone who's getting started um, doesn't yet know the value of their hour. Mm-hmm. They're still figuring that out. They're yeah. still testing. So if you take, you know, like, I'm not going to think about a specific person right now, but if you take someone who's very revered in the field, like let's say a violinist who mm-hmm. just knows what they're doing or, or a singer who knows what they're doing, and they've been playing Carnegie Hall and they've just been recording and doing all the great stuff, um, it, yeah, it might be harder to get their time without paying them. Yeah. And in fact, even if you are paying them, it may be harder to get their time if you're not paying them competitively, just like a programmer in Seattle, yeah. right? So I like to think of it as um, you may have a programmer who's willing to do, I'm just going to give a tech example, but That's you, may, you may have a programmer who's willing to do volunteer work for your organization, uh-huh. which we do, which is wonderful. Um, and you may have a programmer who's willing to work for half what they could get at Amazon at your organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're going to be relying on their passion to make up for the rest of the motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will be harder to get 
a large pool of very talented people if you're not able to, con for a long period of time, like for like an ongoing period of time, like okay. a regular employee, without compensating them in yeah. a way that actually lets them pay their bills. Yeah. Um, they just won't have the time and they won't have the, the, the funds for it. So, I, you know, I'm stepping away a little bit from, from drawing a line between quality and money because I don't think they're necessarily inherent, inherently connected. Mm -hmm. But I do think that in terms of getting them as a resource, getting high quality people as a resource um, on a way, in a way that you can rely on them yeah. on, a, on an ongoing basis, it, it's going to require yeah. funds. And even within this issue, you know, you take these big names, um, Yo-Yo Ma or, or, you know, in my opinion, if you're just going to look at them as musicians and their level of execution, I would say is definitely better than the average. But there are actually a lot of people better than the average that aren't Yo-Yo Ma prices. Even within Seattle, you know, if you're going to hire Yo-Yo Ma, you're going to pay just a buttload of money mm -hmm. to get him to show up. Whereas, you know, you pay symphony player, I mean, probably more, more than, definitely more than your average fee. But in my opinion, the quality between the two wouldn't justify the extra money for Yo-Yo Ma to show up. But then you bring in Yo-Yo Ma and then more people show up to the concert. So there's this, there's that side. In some ways, thinking about Assigning like a like a monetary value to someone's skill is is really hard, and it, it doesn't always it doesn't always make sense. But anyways, that's just an aspect of the whole thing that <laughs> that I've been thinking about. So I think let's let's move on to talk about the live music project. And um, I remember first hearing about it four or five years ago. Is that making is that right? Probably the earliest would have been fall twenty thirteen. Okay. Yeah. And I remember getting emails from you saying, <laughs> hey, you know, um, you know, and, and f for those that don't know, I am the director of the Bird Ensemble, and in our organization, that means I have to do all the marketing and all, <laughs> the, all that really boring, just lame administrative work that I just would rather not do. You know, as I'm advertising my, my stuff, I get emails from you. Hey, make sure you sign up on the website. And at first, I thought it was slightly spammy. <laughs> and, and, and second, I, because I just didn't believe that someone could care about mm. getting other people's stuff out there. Shows how much of a pessimist I am, I guess. <laughs> I'm really glad you're doing this. And I think it's... Re uh, I view it as like a thankless job. I mean, but you're, you're really aggressively and clearly passionate about getting everyone's concerts and it's just, it's everyone right it's mm -hmm. like not just or orchestras it's choirs it's it's everything how did you come up with the idea did you do it do it on your own did you i see you have quite a quite a staff um <laughs> how did that all kind of manifest um, i came up with the idea on my own sort of in a notebook um in my new york city apartment back when i was there um and didn't have time to work on it then because I had a full-time or sort of more than full-time tech job. Moved out to Seattle and had the opportunity to start job hunting here and realized... Why did you move to Seattle? Well, that's a long story. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> not, for, not for this podcast. <laughs> um, Twitter caused me to move to Seattle, but I'll, I'll tell you more about that. Okay. Offline. 
Okay. Um, but uh, I moved here, started looking for new jobs, and you know my job is a product manager, and what that means is I work within a tech company to figure out what humans need to do things, accomplish things on the internet or on in an app, and work with them to learn what their tasks are and what their pathways are, their workflows, and then work with engineering to get those things built and designers to get them designed. And, um, and so as I looked through all the things that I could be working on in Seattle, when I looked on the job boards, I kept thinking, well, this like music project thing seems like it could be really cool to work on. I'm not seeing anything cooler than that right now. And if I sink my teeth into a new job now, I'm not going to touch it, this music project thing, whatever it is, for another four or five years. So maybe I'll just pause and start this music project thing, whatever it is. And just didn't have a name for it, didn't know what it was. I just knew it was something about like live music or something. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I just, I literally started gathering concert data. Um, and originally the idea was to get the main orchestras from the big cities in the, in the country and pull all that together because I didn't know that a city could have more than one orchestra or two orchestras because mm -hmm. I didn't yet know about community orchestras. And so I started gathering and reaching out to all these orchestras around the country and emailing them and gathering their concert listings in Chicago and New York and wherever. And then um, came across this community orchestra situation and mm -hmm. completely shifted my focus. And I um, still didn't have anyone working on it with me. It was just me and my laptop, looking up information. And then um, I decided to gather all the Seattle information and put it in a calendar. And originally had a potential friend that was going to code it up for me. And he had a few pretty bad family emergencies all at the same time and basically just oh, said, no. I'm sorry. Like, I can barely keep up with my own work. Um, I can't do this project. Which is what happens when you have volunteers. Yeah. People who are doing work for passion and for free. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, when things get rough, they have to prioritize. And I think it's the, probably the right decision to support his family. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was stuck not having a job, having a spreadsheet full of data and nowhere to put it. Um, and I went to a local um, meetup here um, called Code, it was called Code for Seattle, where folks just get together once a week and work on projects that are like civic minded. So helping build apps that let you report broken streetlights and things like that. Wow. Really, What's really it cool. Code group. For it was called Code for Seattle. Uh -huh. And um, I can't remember what it's called right now. But okay. I'll give you the link later. You can All post right. it with this. Um, and I met someone there named Carol who was just in between jobs and looking to move on slightly beyond her Microsoft skills and was curious about learning WordPress. And someone else had told me, you know, I know you don't consider WordPress like hardcore technology and code and stuff, but like it's probably a great way to get this started. And so Carol and I worked together um, for about six months and we um, used WordPress and plugins and we put in the data and she made some tweaks to the interface mm -hmm. and we launched it six months later. Cool. Um, this was in 2013? This was in April 2014. Mm -hmm. We launched. Mm -hmm. We just had our third birthday. Okay. Um, and then uh, along the way, um, we started building up volunteer groups and um, had to really decide if I was going to take it forward as a business um, and came up against the for-profit, non-profit question. Mm -hmm. um, and as a person who really believes in um, egalitarianism and shared resources and community involvement, um, it sounded like it would be better for the live music project on an ongoing basis to be really mission focused mm -hmm. rather than profit focused. 
Yeah. And so um, about a year ago, we incorporated as a nonprofit. Great. That required a board, and so we started building the board. Mm -hmm. So now we do have a pretty great supporting group. We have a board of seven. Um, we have several volunteers who contribute on, in varying amounts throughout the week, um, and we are always looking for more. Mm -hmm. If I can plug that. Yeah, plug, plug away. We have a calendar squad. Uh-huh that helps maintain the calendar. So a lot of organizations are submitting their own events to the calendar. Anyone can. It's free. It's easy. Um, uh, but at the same time, a lot of organizations just don't. They're run by a single person who does everything like you, and they don't have the resources to do one more marketing um, step. And so um, I keep a master calendar, and we have event-a-thons pretty much quarterly. Mm -hmm. And we get a bunch of people together, and we have bagels and locks, and we get 100 or so events on the calendar um, for all oh. those groups that need that support. Um, there's information about this on the website, so if you want to join the calendar squad, you can. What's um, that website? Uh, livemusicproject.org. Yeah, we'll make sure to have a link to it. <laughs> um, we also have a programming team um, mm -hmm. that are all volunteer. And so if you... Uh, like to work in Python and Django. It's full stack project. We're building the we're rebuilding the website from scratch to launch this fall. Wow! In and, WordPress again? Uh, not in WordPress. Um, oh, moving up in the world. Moving up in the world. <laughs> uh, you know, well, after the last couple of years, um, it's been really helpful uh, to be limited in resources because we've really kept the calendar simple, uh -huh. and hopefully, we'll continue to keep it simple. But over the, this time, we've realized there are things that our community needs that you can't get from like a basic out of the box calendar, which is sort of designed for your like weekly knitting group, which happens yeah. same time, same place every week. Whereas your concert does not do that. Yeah. Your concert's gonna be Friday at eight, Saturday at seven, and Sunday at two, for example, mm -hmm. and possibly three different places and three different ticketing websites. Mm -hmm. So you need a way to efficiently post all those three concerts that have the same program without mm -hmm. posting all the program information again and again. So we're designing for that as well as other things that will be useful to the community. So um, we have a volunteer programming team, and we welcome additional volunteers. If you would like to do that, visit the website and contact us. All right, do it, guys. All you um, philanthropy programmers out there, or um, don't have to be a programmer to volunteer. Nope. Yeah, that's great. Um, so what kind of – so I, I'm, I'm catching that you have a – you have some technical background, and you'd mentioned so that that you're pretty data driven. What kind of data are you collecting in Live Music Project? Is it stuff that performers can use to help build their audience? What kind of what kind of information are you logging? Great question. So we mostly log information about performances. Mm -hmm. um, so date, time, location, um, works performed. Are tags composers are also tags genre key instruments um, if it's kid friendly if it's free things like that mm -hmm. um, going forward we will also be logging um, we will add, be adding data about um, birth and death dates of composers so we're gonna have interesting data on I don't know if I mentioned that we're relaunching nationally oh okay but we are so we will have interesting nationwide data about um, how much people are performing works by living composers, for example. Oh, wow. Could be interesting. Yeah. Um, top most performed pieces across the country. Wow. So if you're planning a concert and you don't want to overlap with something that's been played again and again in your city, you can look that up and find out um, how often it's been played. 
recently. Mm-hmm. I think last year there were five performances of Holst's Planets in the Puget Sound area yeah. in one year. Um, we we don't collect data about our users right now, but we could. I think right now their interests are so disparate that um, collecting, sort of tracking search patterns of what they're looking up on the site is not going to be that informative. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a vision when I first started the project that I was dis- what's the word disabused of um, that if I were to collect information about what people were searching for in Seattle in terms mm-hmm. of which pieces they wanted to hear, that might help eliminate some of the fear of programming works that could be considered adventurous and risky mm. um, if you knew people were looking to listen to them. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed a few artistic directors about this at the very beginning of the project, and they made it really clear that their motives of what they program and when are not connected to... Um, well, I should say it's not that they're ignoring what people are interested in, but they have reasons for choosing what they're choosing. And so I felt very naive for thinking data could possibly um, impact that. But you know, things from like, hey, I have my list of top 100 pieces that I've wanted to c- conduct since I was 12. Yeah. What are you going to say? Like, that's oh, no, very important, you know, and passionate. And yeah, that's I- the art. If I can add to that, you know, from with my director hat on, <laughs> thinking about recording people, I would think that would be meaningful to know what mm. what people are listening to. Maybe what people are, I guess, m- more relevant would be what people are buying. But knowing who's being listened to, I think, is important from a from a CD recording point sure. of view. Um, but um, yes, I, I their their point is also granted. Yeah, I, I, when I program, I have, you know, we have a specific set of um, musical styles and um, genres we try to focus on, you know, to consistent with our own mission. I will say there are, um, we have a few mailing lists that can, as we grow, provide some of that interesting information about what do people who like listening to X also like listening to? Like what Y things do they also like listening to? So yeah. um, we have a few mailing lists where you can subscribe to a specific composer or a specific piece of folk music. Mm, mm. And whenever a new concert is added to the calendar that fits that description mm-hmm. um, or that tag, they get a notification. Yeah. Um, that list is small but growing. And as it grows to support our entire, the entire repertoire mm-hmm. that's tagged in our system and nationwide, there's going to be some very interesting trends, I think, about what people subscribe to get notifications about because I think that's the strongest indication of what they're really interesting, passionate yeah. about listening yeah. to. Yeah. All of us are trying to figure out how to build our own audience and um, you know it sounds really sinister when you know you're encouraging people to collect audience data. <laughs> oh yeah I would hesitate I should say that this is you know this is data that would not be disclosed in connection with any sort of marketing push. Yeah. However um one of our programs is Spontaneous Free Tickets. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with. No, I don't think um, so. It's basically an audience-building tool that also gets tickets out to our community. So if you have a concert and you want new audience or you know you're going to have a ton of extra seats that you mm-hmm. just want to fill, you can submit those tickets to our Spontaneous Free Tickets program. Yeah. Um, and then we have a mailing list for that. People can opt in and say, hey, I'm interested in this concert. Please put, me in the, put my name in the hat for two tickets. Yeah. Um, and then we distribute those tickets. After the concert, they get a feedback survey okay. that says, hey, did you go? How was it? Good, great, neutral. Um, but more importantly, it says, 
uh, yes, I want to be on the mailing list of this performing group. Mm-hmm. And they opt in. It's, it's acknowledged that we're going to share that information. Um, and then they get to send a feedback note, too. Um, so what that does is it, it actually builds the mailing list for the ensemble that's performing in a way that is totally legit. There's no secret sharing of email. It's, yeah. hey, I want to know when Bird Ensemble is playing. Please tell me. Yeah. And that goes to you, and you get all their feedback as well, and they send really, really sweet notes. Well, about the audience growth question, that's something I've been thinking about, and I think I might have mentioned on previous podcasts that I think um, the audience a community ensemble gets is different than mm-hmm. an audience a professional group gets just because of the design. So you have the friends and family in any group. They just start going away after a few years. As in, a, in a professional setting, to get off the ground, you rely on them to, to donate, to come to the concerts. But eventually, after some time, they stop doing that. And what you what you start building are, are people that are genuinely interested in the group slash music you're doing. Whereas in a community choir, I think it's it's more reliant on new friends and family to kind of help support the, the whole organization. I don't know how in touch you are with the orchestral scene and their audience, you know, the pros versus the community orchestras. Mm-hmm. Do you find that operating similarly? Yeah, what do you think? How is it working on that side? I think it depends how the ensembles marketing themselves. Uh-huh. Um, I definitely have come across ensembles that um, when I mentioned to them that I could help build their audience, they say, we don't really care about audience. We're just here to play. Uh-huh. I'm not sure everyone leading that those ensembles would have agreed, yeah. but it's definitely something in the hearts of s- some organizations that they're there to be together. And the performance is sort of like the piano recital that you have in sixth grade where... Um, not in quality, but just in it, you're you're there to show a completion. You've done this thing, yeah. you've completed it. Uh, I think a lot of those ensembles are basically bringing um, mostly friends and family, okay. and they're totally are these fine. Pro- with are that. these professional ensembles? Oh no, think? community orchestra. Okay, community. yeah. But there are other community orchestras, and I just I'll speak more to the community groups because I know more about their what they're doing than the professional groups. Um, but there are other community groups that market beyond their friends and family mm-hmm. and their personal Facebooks. And they put things on um, uh, Living Social or on Groupon. And they have Instagram accounts where they announce their upcoming concerts and discounts and stuff like that. Um, and uh, those groups have a growing audience of strangers. Mm-hmm. And I mean stranger supporters. People who didn't know about them. Um, I, I know people come across some of these groups through Life Music Project with spontaneous free tickets, and they say, oh, it's a free ticket, low barrier to entry. Benaroya Hall, probably pretty good, or, or this other place, probably pretty good. Um, and they go, and, and they're like, I didn't even know this group existed, but I'm going to go to all their concerts now. Mm-hmm. So I think there is room for this other type of audience that mm-hmm. you're mentioning. Um, I think... If all you're putting out there is an image, like a, a, a JPEG on Facebook, where we're having this concert, and all it says is it's your spring concert, and this is the name of the organization, and this is the date, all you're going to get are people who already know who you are. Mm-hmm. Because from what I'm finding on 
live music project, either through search or watching people use the website. I've done user testing, videotaped them using the site and learned about how people look for concerts. People look for concerts based on a few things. They follow groups they're passionate about. They look for music they're passionate about, composers or specific pieces of music. And if they don't know about those things, sometimes they're also just happy to read an interesting description, mm -hmm. right? So if you're not posting repertoire and you're not posting a description, you are eliminating people who choose based on repertoire and you're eliminating people who don't know about your org, who don't know names of composers or pieces of music, but will go if they're interested in what you're describing. Yeah. So I think it's really important if you're interested in gaining an audience that is beyond your immediate circle of, hey, that's Mark. I'm going to go listen to Mark because mm -hmm. he's Mark. That's great. And you will get that. And your, your stranger supporters will turn into that. Um, it doesn't just have to be family that feels that way. But if you want to reach anyone who doesn't already know your Markiness, then you've got to put out there, hey, I'm Mark. I'm wearing a plaid shirt. <laughs> I'm really friendly and I'm cool and I have a great podcast voice. Come hear me. Then people who don't know who you are but care about plaid will totally come say hi. Or people who don't care about plaid but want to hear someone with a great podcast voice will come listen to you. You just, you have to give people a reason to show up. And if you don't, you're just going to get your inner circle. And if all you want is an inner circle, that is totally fine. Mm -hmm. It's totally great. Inner circles are warm and fuzzy and awesome. Um, and you can really be yourself with them. But if you're looking to grow your audience beyond that, um, and if you want to ask people for money sometimes who aren't your friends, mm -hmm. um, you need to give them some reason to be interested in what you're doing. And it's as simple as a repertoire list on your concert, which you always do, Mark. No, so well, thank you. That's a great pro tip, everyone. Take note of that. Post your con post what you're the composers you're doing. Do it all. Make sure you're just not posting your name. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a question come up when I posted that we were gonna talk on Facebook. How to deal with our aging audience. I think the maybe implied concern is getting new younger people in concerts. So do you have anything to say about that? Do you find that um, young people are becoming concert goers? Hmm. Um, not having researched trends in classical music audience attendance, I feel um, ill-equipped to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. um, I will say that the user base of our website is very mixed, so mm -hmm. younger and older, which I, I love, and I, I think that's really healthy. Um, I, I will say that there's been a shift in maybe what people are looking for when they go hear music or when they do anything with their time mm -hmm. that's sort of like uh, uh, recreational. And that is that people are looking for an engaging experience. And sometimes that's um, going to put strain on the sort of is it enough to go into a room and sit down for two hours and listen to music? Um, I, I don't think it requires that there be, you know, a flashy light show that's generated behind the, <laughs> behind the orchestra or something like that, but um, speaks to something more, I think, human. So wanting to engage in some way. And again, this doesn't mean like you have drinks with the performers afterwards, but you kind of want to feel that the performers are there. Um, and I think... Um, and, I, and I go hear professional groups and community groups both, and I enjoy them both, and people have their preferences for various reasons. But um, one thing you can sometimes find with, with volunteer groups is they are very enthusiastic. Yeah. And that's kind of exciting. If you're someone who um, 
doesn't necessarily care what exactly you're going to go here or the level of professionalism and craftsmanship. Um, sometimes you really just want to feel alive. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the groups that's sort of taken hold around Seattle um, and in a few other cities is called Group Muse. Okay. Have you heard of it? No. Um, essentially, it's 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 been described as like Uber for classical music. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe no, maybe Airbnb for classical music. Okay. So basically, musicians can go on this website. It's started by this these conservatory kids in, in Boston and New York, I think. Um, you go on this website and you say, "I'm a performer. My group is such and such group. Um, here's the video. Can we be part of your system?" And then they have people who have homes, who just or dorms or whatever it is, who just want to host a concert. And then musicians can go play. And the hosts can bring all their friends, and it sort of helps build an audience really easily because the host already has 15 friends they can invite. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, I think in Seattle, these performances have really ranged in quality. They've varied in quality, but they're really fun. Yeah. Because you're going to hang out with your friends in a living room with music and maybe some wine or some cheese and crackers or something. Mm-hmm. And it sort of brings back what chamber music once was. An interesting idea. Yeah. So... Um, it's, it's, I think, groupmuse.com mm-hmm. or .org. I'm not sure off the top of my head. Um, but uh, I, I sort of lost my train of thought for a moment. No, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think something else to consider when programming um, for young people um, or younger people, really any people, is consider the people. Yeah. So we, we sort of have a freebie with older generations because we know what they've been listening to and what they're what their listening patterns have been over the last 200 years. Um, not that they're 200, but uh, with younger people, we actually have to do the work yeah. to figure out what they want. And um, one thing I've seen that seems to me to be maybe something to be wary of is taking programming for older people and tweaking it for younger people. And I would suggest if you're thinking about programming with, for younger people, start with the younger people and ask them what they're interested in and build up around that mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of okay if that doesn't work also for older people right. it might yeah you never know i mean just because things have been a certain way for a few hundred years doesn't mean the people subjected to that want that either yeah um so it, it's just an exercise sort of in knowing your audience mm-hmm. um and saying well we've been doing this this way our audience should want it um maybe something that we want but um, it's not how most other products work. Most mm-hmm. other products you think about, who are we selling to? What do they need? Maybe we can provide that. Yeah. And then when sales work, you're like, well, I did my research. I built something people wanted to buy, and now they're buying it. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's all good. Have you, have you done some programming before? Have you organized your own concert with composers and stuff you want to hear? Uh, I've... I've organized just a few, uh-huh. um, and I haven't done too much of the artistic programming. Just mm-hmm. sort of brought groups together that would then determine what they were gonna, um, what they were gonna perform. Cool. Um, I'm planning a concert in August. Yeah. Um, Lavena Johansson, who's actually um, she's from Seattle, lives in Baltimore now. She's a cellist. Mm-hmm. Um, is going to um, be doing a concert with her husband Judah Adashi, and he's at Peabody. They're both in Baltimore, um, and. This was my first foray into programming myself, 
Um, I heard her perform a few years ago in San Francisco, a piece that Judah wrote that was really absolutely beautiful and envisioned her playing that at Naked City Brewery, which is just a great, small, cozy venue um, mm -hmm. in Greenwood. And so when um, we started talking about a concert here, I said, you guys can do the programming, but I'm going to request this one piece. Nice, nice. And the piece is called My Heart Comes Undone. And the concert's going to take place the day of the eclipse, just by wow. chance. And so we sort of jokingly called the concert um, Total Eclipse of My Heart Comes Undone. <laughs> and knowing how things stick, that might be the name of the concert. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's sort of my own foray. But most of the time when I plan um, events, I really just think about the vibe of the event. Mm -hmm. um, I think about sort of a theme that I tie across um, a speaker that's usually outside of the arts yeah. and a pr group of performers that are in the arts. So when we had our annual event um, at Naked City in April this year, we had an astronaut speak about when things go wrong in space. She wow. lost a tool belt as one example. It went into orbit and then burned up on reentry nine months later. Oh, God. Um, and then Aaron Grad came and he, he, Aaron Grad is a composer, but he also writes program notes for the Seattle Symphony and others. So he came and he, he has built an electric theorbo and he played the electric theorbo and he improvised to a flight of beer. And it was called Flights of Fancy. <laughs> um, and so that's the type of event that I work on. Really, I give the artists their freedom to play what, what seems to them to fit for the event. Mm -hmm. And then I plan the overarching program. Cool. Yeah. Good. Well, we're hitting the one hour mark and I, I think we should wrap this up, but is there anything else you wanted to add to our conversation or any other questions you have for me before we, before we call it good? Um, no, just thanks for having me. This has been, this has been a fun conversation. Thanks for coming here. And, and I really have respect for what you're doing. I think, I mean, I'm sure you love it, but I always, you know, I'm just like, gosh, this is a thankless job. <laughs> like doing all this work, organizing basically a musical community is what you, uh, what I see it as, and which is great, and all of all of us benefit from your work in it. So um, thank you. Also, it is the opposite of thankless. It <laughs> I is. Do it is. I mean, I'm sitting here looking out over Seattle with the sun, ish, streaming <laughs> in, having a great conversation. This is part of my job. Good, good. I wouldn't trade it. Good. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast, and. Um, Say where people can follow you again, just one last time. You can follow me on my website. It's shyalion.com, S-H-A-Y-A-L-Y-O-N, or on Twitter. I'm Pickleshy, P-I-C-K-L-E-S-H-Y. And um, I'm always open to messages and hellos. And a Live Music Project, the website for that is? Livemusicproject.org. Great. And I'll have links to that with this post. Um, thanks again. Take care. Thanks for having me.